the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed it is. The Bob France Authority. Good morning. Thank you. Gets underway on this Tuesday, the 30th and penultimate morning of the seventh month of the year of our Lord, 2019. Appreciate you being with us. Um, it's been a few days since we heard Congressman Jim Jordan laying into Bob What's Mueller. interesting, you can charge 13 Russians. No one's ever heard of. No one's ever seen. No one's ever going to hear of them. No one's ever going to see them. You can charge them. You can charge all kinds of people who are around the president with false statements. But the guy who launches every, the guy who puts this whole story in motion, you can't charge him. I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing, too. Congressman Jim Jordan laying it all out before Bob Mueller last Wednesday. And I give you that now. Again, it's been a few days since we heard it, just so that I can launch into a conversation with our friend Peter Kersenow, from whom we have not heard since the Mueller testimony last Wednesday. Peter Kersenow is a Cleveland attorney. He's a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He's a fill-in radio show host. He brings you the Kersenow Report. He's a best-selling author, and he is my favorite guy to have on the radio on AM 1420. The answer. Hey, Pete, good morning, sir. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for that great introduction. Only 39 days until the first game of the NFL season for the Browns. And you know what? I'm going to break uh, with... Oh, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it, Pete. It's working well. (laughs) Don't jinx it. Don't jinx it. You're talking about a no-hitter in the sixth inning here. Don't do it, Peter Personal. Just stay with what works. (laughs) Where are you going? I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll just say that um, I'm hopeful that the the, um, Indians do not trade Trevor Bauer. I don't know what's going to happen. Trade deadline coming up. I think most people think that uh, Yankees will probably go with Madison Baumgartner instead of Bauer. I think that throwing the ball over the (laughs) center field fence didn't help his prospects one way or another for either being traded or being a favorite of the Browns front office. But um, Browns, I'll tell you, the the I'm sorry, the Indians front office. But I think the Indians are looking really amazing. Best record in baseball since June 15th. 
June fourth. Uh, it's been a longer run than that. Best record in baseball yeah. since June fourth. They have been killing Am- it. Amazing, truly yeah. amazing, and doing it with, actually without our two top pitchers, Kluber and Carrasco. So um, that's really remarkable. Yeah, it really, really is, uh, Pete, and it is fun to watch, and we're not going to jinx them at all by talking about anything <laughs> else than they've been playing well. All right, Pete, I just gave you, because there's so much to do with you, obviously. Um, you know, you and I spoke last Tuesday, and then, of course, Wednesday, so it's been almost a full week now since uh, the Mueller uh, hearings, and everybody has had a chance to weigh in on this, except you, at least to my knowledge, unless you went on one of the national shows that I missed. So, uh, Pete, you, you, you heard Bob Mueller incoherently stammer and yammer through this entire thing, acting as if he had never even read the report, much less wrote it leading some to believe that he did not lead the investigation, that the, that was designated to the pit bull, Andrew Weissman, who, um, uh, quite frankly, cannot be trusted, uh, I don't think, by anybody. Uh, what was your takeaway, your large takeaway from what you heard, and where do you think the Democrats go from here after that debacle of a, of a hearing? I think there are a few takeaways, but I'll, let me just land on the one that you just played a few moments ago. Jim Jordan was, and a few others, had made some inquiries into why it is that a guy that I don't think gets very much coverage, at least in the mainstream media, even on Fox News, and that's this guy, Joseph Mifsud, who was the genesis for the entire investigation. He was never charged with lying to the FBI. Everyone else was charged. I mean, if you said you had, um, you know, a bagel for breakfast as opposed to Wheaties, you got, you got charged and convicted for lying to the FBI. But this guy was the seminal guy through this entire investigation. This is why the whole thing was launched, or at least the probe or the counterintelligence probe of Donald Trump was launched. And yet he lied to the FBI. They didn't charge him, which is really peculiar. And that's why Jordan was so interested in this, because Mifsud is alleged to be some type of Russian asset or connections with the Russians, but it appears on further reflection that he actually had greater connections with the West. And if you connect the dots, it appears that Mifsud was the guy that they used to launch a sting on the Trump operation of the Trump campaign to permit the FBI and all of our other counterintelligence agencies to spy on the Trump campaign and cause all kinds of mischief. I really expect that with uh, the imminent revelations in the IG's report, with the investigation by U.S. Attorney John Durham, and all the other things that Barr is doing, we're going to hear much more about that. The other thing, the other takeaway I would note is, and that's a big thing, by the way, the Mifsud thing, keep an eye on that. The other thing I would note is, and I'm simply repeating what many others have said, it's abundantly clear that Mueller was simply lending his name to the entire enterprise. What we had here are rabid Democratic partisans with law degrees who went after, um, and not just Democratic partisans, these were Hillary Clinton lawyers. Some of these people actually represented the Clinton Foundation, had contributed to the campaign, were working on the campaign, really extraordinary, and they were given unlimited funds, unlimited time to bring down Donald Trump. They made their best efforts and failed. Remarkably, they failed. They couldn't produce anything to hang their hats on. The Democrats keep going on and on about obstruction. The standard for that, of course, when Mueller testified, completely turned on its head. Um, I think that what the takeaway I have from this is it is much more evidence that this whole thing, as, as if we needed any, Bob, as that this thing was a charade, 
it was a setup job to first prevent Trump from becoming president and then thereafter to reverse the results of the election. This is, and I've said it before, and I know you've said it, this is the biggest political scandal in American history, and the media refuses to cover it as such. I thought it was hilarious when I heard, I think it was David Gergen, uh, who said on, uh, I just heard a clip, I didn't see it live, but he mm-hmm. he was saying on MF- MSNBC, well, you know, this guy was talking about things that we typically don't talk about here on, on, on these networks. Yeah, because you guys assiduously avoid talking about facts and the truth, and you've been wed to this absurd narrative of Russian collusion by the Trump campaign. I think that uh, bottom line is impeachment's done. I don't care what these guys say. It's not going anywhere. Uh, but they have nothing else uh, except the race card, of course, which they That's bring out every, every election cycle. But they've got nothing else. I mean, think about it. If you are a Democrat, do you want to talk about any of their policy initiatives like Green New Deal or reparations, Medicare for all, taking away private health insurance, open borders? Open border. It goes on and on. It's, it's just stunning. They have gone off the deep end. Objectively so. You can be a partisan uh, and and still recognize that on an objective basis, starting from ground zero, where do these people stand and their arguments, their policy initiatives are nuts, just completely nuts. And I think a lot of older uh, or at least more uh, centered Democrats, if there are any, recognize the danger in the party going off the cliff like this, because during the course of these debates, they are saying things that they're not going to be able to walk back when Donald Trump is on the opposite side of that debate stage. It's going to be, I mean, he's going to be, it's like shooting ducks in a barrel. And it would be that way for almost any Republican candidate. But Donald Trump, are you kidding me? That's why CNN finally, and, and I believe all the media have decided among themselves that they're going to try to make the debates as easy as possible for this collection of characters on the presidential debate stage, because they're now saying we're never going to ask them one word uh, questions that are susceptible of one word answers, or you can raise your hand saying yes or no, uh, because they don't want to pin these guys down. They want to give them some (laughs) flexibility. That's exactly right. And they, uh, uh, you know, what's interesting to me about the debates real quick uh, is that uh, I I wonder whether they're going to go after one another so they can separate and actually win the nomination or if they're just going to say, I'm going to out hate Trump uh, more than more more than my opponents here. It's just going to be, you know, who can hate Trump the most, who can call him the racist, a racist the most times, who can do this, that and the other thing against him. If if that's the way they try to separate one another uh, from one another is just to see who can hate Trump the most. I think they're in for a world of problems. um, and by the way, Pete, I mix my metaphors all the time, but I don't know if I've ever, ever mixed one quite, quite as cringeworthy as shooting a barrel full of ducks. <laughs> I think you meant fish. Pretty sure shooting fish in a barrel. I've never seen a barrel full of ducks that people have just opened fire on. But, it's like but that scene from Animal House. You know, I'm on a roll. You know? <laughs> Peter Kirsten out with us on uh, AM 1420, The Answer. Pete, you mentioned racism as being the only thing they have to play, and that is exactly, of course, where we are now with the Cummings fight. I'm going to take a time out here. We'll come right back, and I'm going to get your thoughts on everything that happened over the weekend, uh, the Baltimore commentary, and we're also going to talk, since we are talking about race, about your work for National Review, about uh, the disparities uh, in school discipline among the races and what uh, local school districts are doing at the behest of, uh, believe it or not, the Obama administration, which started this. We'll continue that part of the conversation, too. Kirsten, I'll back with us after this on AM 1420, The Answer. 
I rescued Toast from a shelter in 2011. I knew right then that she was special. That's just one adoption story that started at a shelter. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Peter Kirsten, now back with us now on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Let's talk about what happened over the weekend in Baltimore. And before we, before we discuss uh, matters of rats and uh, and uh, absentee representatives and uh, allegations of racism, I want to provide a little bit of uh, of context to this. Peter Kirsten, now people think that President Trump just chose Elijah Cummings out of a hat to criticize because he is black. And he happens to be presiding over a terrible district. There are a lot of other terrible districts. Why did they, why did he choose Cummings? He didn't choose Cummings. Cummings essentially chose him when he attacked the president's homeland security secretary. You're doing a great job. I guess you, you feel like you're doing a great job, right? Is we're, that what you're saying? We're doing our level best in a very chance. What does that mean? What does that mean when a child is sitting in their own feces, can't take a shower? Come on, man. What's that about? None of us would have our children in that position. Elijah Cummings decided to have a screaming tantrum at Homeland Security Secretary Kevin McAleen and then proceeded to drag uh, Border Patrol agents, uh, Customs and Border Patrol agents, through the mud as well for the impossible job that they've been given down on our southern border. President Trump, Peter responded to that by saying you're condemning the conditions of the detention facilities that they're living in at the border take a look at the facilities and the people living in your district it is far worse there it is crime infested it is rat infested it is blighted it is absolutely horrific why don't you pay attention more to your district rather than uh, uh chasing phony russian hoaxes uh and and maybe the people there will be better off than the people at the border that's essentially how this whole thing started but pete as you know if you criticize a politician of color you are automatically branded a racist in Woke 2019. Go ahead. This is very similar to just a few days ago when we had the controversy, alleged controversy, about uh, Trump saying to the squad, you know, go back to where he came from and then come back and show us how it's done. And, of course, everybody seized on it. It was very careful by everybody. I mean Democrats in the media, but I repeat myself, to couch it in terms they would specifically admit certain words or certain phrases that Trump had said to make it appear as if he was saying, like, go back to where you came from, you know, you blank, blank, blank. Right. And they did the same thing here with Elijah Cummings, and it's blowing up on them. I think they have resorted to this technique so often now that even those who support them are tired of it. They recognize what's going on. I mean, they may, it doesn't mean that they're going to change their view of Trump, but they're so jaded by it. And I think the playing of the race card now, which they've been doing for decades now, ever since I've been alive, Democrats have been playing the race card. They are the party of race. I, you know, you can, I won't go through the litany. We've gone through right. it before. Sure. But the bottom line here is that they, they don't have anything else except for impeachment or going after Trump. They play the race card because, as we've just said you know, a few minutes ago, all of their policy initiatives are literally insane at this point. It used to be just a few years ago that, yeah, we could argue about the Democratic policies and say that they're, you know, they're too far gone, they cost too much money, they're unworkable. But now, that's not the appropriate adjectives to be labeling it with. They are truly insane. So they play the race card because it's really the only uh, bullet they've got left in their belt. 
and they've got to fire it over and over again. And, and now I think the problem they've got is for decades they were comfortable in the fact that Republican politicians would immediately get back into their lanes, get back in the politically correct box, grovel and apologize profusely for slights real and imagined. And they've got, for the first time, a guy who's saying, no, I'm not playing your game. I am not a racist. I'm not going to be politically correct, because to do so means I've got to accept your presumptions and assumptions, which lead to more poverty, more degradation, more crime, all the things that the Democrats in their cities have failed at and refused to fix. Trump was factually correct, but that's not necessarily the most important thing here, although I do think that's extremely important. I think what's important is Trump broke the mold, broke the chains that bind so many Republican and conservative politicians who don't speak the truth and then because of that don't initiate the kind of policy conversations that need to be had, pointing out how the Democrats have presided over failing cities for decades. You know, we have talked about Bob in the past. I mean, we can cite so many examples, but the one I always cite is the one of Detroit, that there has not been a Republican mayor of Detroit in more than 65 years. For Chicago, it's nearly 90 years. But when you look at Detroit, in the early 1950s, Detroit was the wealthiest city in the world, not just the country, the wealthiest city in the world. Uninterrupted six decades of Democrat rule, and what do you have now? All due respect to Detroit, you know. Um, same with Baltimore. Take a look at Baltimore. Um, the, the fact of the matter is all of the leftist organs for quite some time and more recently, you know, the Newsweeks, the PBSs, the New York Timeses of the world had all noted that Baltimore was rat infested. You can just look at the stats and note that the crime rate is ridiculous. You and I, Bob, about a year ago or maybe two years ago talked about how the crime rates in Baltimore, although they had already been relatively high, spiked right after the Freddie Gray incident. More than a hundred more murders right after the Freddie Gray incident when um, their previous mayor, Rawlings, said, well, we need to give rioters space, space to destroy. in which to destroy. I mean, yeah. extraordinary stuff. Police were pulling back. And now what's the cost of that, of democratic policies? Is 100 more Baltimoreans dead every year since then. Extraordinary stuff. Uh, you had a, uh, I used to go to Baltimore on business on a regular basis in the 90s. You know, they were uh, experiencing a little bit of a renaissance with the, the Inner Harbor. Inner Harbor is still a very nice place to go to, but you look at the neighborhoods, you look at the amount of business there, which could be there or would remain there if Democrats weren't doing really insane things there. So it's about time that a Republican or conservative politician called them out on this, is not cowed, won't you know, get on bended knee and apologize for saying something that was on its face, not racist, and truthful. This needs, it's, it's probably one of the most important remedies in our political sphere that Republicans not be afraid of speaking essential truths because they know they're going to get smeared by lies from the Democrats in the media. But I repeat myself, do not do it, you know, all this faults, and I, I think they're minor in comparison. Trump leads the way on this, and it's refreshing. 
Pete, uh, we're going to take a time out here for the bottom of the hour news. I still want to focus, though, on the race part of it, especially as it pertains to Bernie Sanders, who once insulted Baltimore as being a third-world right. country and never uh, nobody said a word. Former Mayor Catherine Pugh, who said, ooh, on video, I can smell the rats. Nobody ever called her a racist for pointing out it's a rat-infested city. Of course, she's an African-American mayor and more. Uh, and then, of course, I want to get into the other race story of the morning, your work on racial disparities in school discipline. That's still coming up with Peter Kirsten. Now, one more segment after this on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, 1034 now. We continue with Peter Kersenow on AM 1420, The Answer. Um, Pete, you, you laid out all of the facts uh, about Baltimore, and we talked about the um, fact that other individuals who have criticized Baltimore for being disgusting, crime-ridden, poverty-stricken, blighted, uh, rat-infested, et cetera, et cetera, they haven't been called racist, especially as harshly as they were by the likes of Chris Wallace, who apparently is working for CNN but is receiving his paychecks from Fox News. He had Mick Mulvaney on. He had Mick Mulvaney on Sunday and said this. This goes back to what happened with the, the four members of the squad. Nobody objects to the president defending his border policies, but this seems, Mick, to be the worst kind of racial stereotype. Let me finish. Yeah. Racial stereotyping black congressman, majority black district. I mean, no human being would want to live there. Is he saying people that live in Baltimore are not human beings? I I, uh, I, I just I stopped uh, when I heard that in, in my tracks, and I, I just had to stop for a second. Did he really just say that? Um, this is the worst type of race baiting and racial arson that I think that I've seen in a long time. Obviously, what President Trump is saying is that no human beings want to move to Baltimore. You think anybody is picking up uh, the family and saying, you know what, we're going to relocate. We're going to go to West Baltimore. Looks delightful there. Nobody would choose to go and live in that rat-infested garbage dump. Nobody would choose to do that. No human beings. And the human beings that are there are trapped and stuck in the cycle of poverty that Elijah Cummings has not helped to lift them out of. So, But yet the race card being just, it's not even a race card anymore. It's just flat-out racial lies, Pete, uh, that people like Chris Wallace are getting away with. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary, Bob. It's infuriating when you hear that because, again, look at the president's statements. They impute to him racism where it doesn't exist. Um I forgot who it was. It could have been James Taranto of Wall Street Journal, maybe even Andrew Breitbart, who once said, and I think many of us thought this anyway, but they articulated it, that if you hear a dog whistle, maybe you're the dog, and it's always the left that hears these purported dog whistles of racism where there's nothing in the words spoken by the person being accused that even remotely approaches race, simply because someone points out facts with respect to, quote-unquote, people of color or community of color, they impute racism or a racist motive to that. I think some of them believe that. I think most of them don't, because as we've said before, it's the only card they have to play because they kind of argue policy. But it's debilitating to the ability of those communities to advance because what it does is it helps, it, it, it inevitably means they're ignoring the policy prescriptions that would raise people out of those conditions. For Chris Wallace, who should know better, to immediately go to race where nothing was said simply because someone criticizes a person of color or makes a factual observation that is negative 
because the facts are negative about a person right. of color, again, I hate that term, but I'm going to use their terms, doesn't mean that person is racist, unless you automatically believe that maybe there's some saliency to what the person says and race, as opposed to the conditions about what they're talking about. What's... So those are the individuals who need to examine their own viewpoints to determine why does they always immediately knee-jerk fashion go to race as the reason for why someone like a president trump says something what motivates him right. uh, I, I, it's infuriating it continues to act as an impediment to have good discussions policy-based discussions on how to solve the manifold problems afflicting the black community yeah, and what's equally infuriating is the suggestion that he was also criticizing the people of that district, when in fact he was rising up in their defense saying they have to live in this squalid, these squalid conditions because their representative is busy chasing Russian hoaxes rather than actually representing them, and suggesting that Trump somehow insulted the people of the district who happen to be majority black there is equally infuriating. Let, let's, let's pivot to the classroom, Pete. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I want to leave enough time here for you to talk about this great piece that you wrote last week about racial disparities in school dist- uh, school discipline. We have seen this before. This is something that has been uh, was pushed by the Obama administration to address the d- uh, disproportionate number of uh, African American or minority kids who are suspended and disciplined from schools compared to white kids. And what he and they wanted to do about it, something that is continuing today. And I'll let you tell the story. Yeah, well, uh, what happened here is the, last week the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights issued a report on disparities in school discipline on, on the basis of race. And what it was was an effort on the part of the commission majority, which is liberal, to reinstitute the Obama-era guidance that functionally operated to compel schools to have quotas for discipline. That is, they didn't want black students, Hispanic students to be Discipline that by that I mean suspended or expelled at rates higher than white or Asian students. And so it functionally amounted to quotas and schools abided by them for a host of reasons, most of which is they don't want to be subject to a DOJ or DOE investigation and have to spend millions of dollars, maybe be subject to a consent decree. Uh, and many of them were ideologically, I think, uh, inclined to do so anyway. Well, uh, my colleague on the commission, the only other conservative on the commission, Professor Gail Harriet, and I uh, worked hard with the Department of Education after Trump was elected to try to get that guidance rescinded, and lo and behold, it was. So the commission majority uh, and the commission chair, who was the head of civil rights for the Department of Education when that letter was issued, so she had, you know, she had a, 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 uh, 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 some uh, skin in the game here, they want that guidance reinstituted and, among other things, blame uh, Democrat or Republicans for anything bad that occurs in the schools. But here's, here are the facts. They blithely stated in the commission report that was issued that, well, you know, blacks are suspended and Hispanics are suspended at a rate of three to four times more than whites and Asians, and that there is, they said this, in spite of the fact that their own report said just the opposite, that there's no evidence of any disparities in the commission of offenses by blacks and uh, Hispanics versus whites and Asians that would merit this 
disproportionate amount of expulsions and suspensions. And that's just the opposite of what the facts show. The facts show that indeed blacks and Hispanics are three to four times more likely to be involved in offenses that result in suspension and discipline. In other words, it's merited. It's, it's, it's virtually proportional. And what happens then? When that guidance was instituted, what many of us predicted, the, the Obama-era guidance, is when schools started to tamp down and operate on the basis of quotas for imposing suspensions and expulsions, students who committed violent acts would remain in the classroom, and it was extraordinary as to what happened. Rates of violent instances at schools increased exponentially, not by just a few, but more than 1,000 violent acts more per school day occurred. Wow. 1,000 more. People were being beaten. Teachers, we had teachers testifying before the commission that one teacher had suffered some brain damage, others have been beaten pretty badly. I've been interacting with a number of teachers who had significant problems. Schools, of course, the classrooms ran amok because the bad actors knew that these teachers couldn't do anything to them. Nothing whatsoever. Things got worse. And as I said, right after that, not long after that uh, Obama-era guidance was issued, violent crime or violent incidences spiked dramatically. Now, we don't have enough data because the Trump administration only recently rescinded that guidance. So we're going to have to wait until the next statistical cycle to see what the uh, ramifications of that are. But I would predict that the amount of violence and other types of instances, uh, incidents at these schools begins to decline again. It just makes common sense. So here we are again with this obsession with, and it's an obsession, by the way, based on a false narrative with getting the numbers right, regardless of what the underlying circumstances may be. And this... Do you have any numbers on that, Pete? I apologize for interrupting. I, 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 I'd like to let you go as long as I can, but I have so many follow-up questions. I want to stick one in here. Do you have any numbers? Did the commission find any numbers? Is the federal data there that shows anything about the family life or the number of parents in the home or those sorts of things of the individuals involved that would lead us to understand why there is such a disproportionate number of right. crimes or offenses committed by these particular students compared to whites and his, uh, whites and uh, and Asians? Um, you know, so that we can actually point out it's not they're being targeted; they're not being guided at home. There's no discipline in the home, so how can there be discipline in the school? Yeah, that was outside the purview of this particular report, but there have been other reports that the Commission has done and others have done over the years that show that there is a startling, not startling, but startling in terms of the parallel, but there is a clear connection between students. If you disaggregate for every other type of variable, the one variable that most closely aligns with the probability that a student is going to commit some kind of offense that results in a disciplinary suspension or expulsion is whether or not that student comes from a two-parent family or a single-parent family. And if the student comes from a single-parent family, they are two, sometimes it depends on how you do this because males are more likely to act out, um, up to four times more likely than a similarly 
situated student that is same race, same neighborhood, everything else that comes from a two-parent family. That's the one variable that the left will never, ever, ever address. And it's right there as blatant and as bold as can be. Everyone can see it, but no one wants to address that on the left or in the media, but I repeat myself. Instead, they want to focus on an alleged disparity that could only be explained by racial discrimination, of course. Yeah, exactly. Uh, It's part of perpetuating the narrative that, of course, this country is irretrievably racist, and especially anybody who's conservative is racist. And for that reason, this is why what's going on with President Trump is very important, because he's calling them out on this. These folks have been very comfortable to simply let the status quo remain, not to change anything, just to sit in their sinecures and let all these things occur without any remedies, and then use that as a cudgel to call anybody who wants a change racist. But President Trump is saying, no, I'm going to point these things out, and more and more people are starting to get a little bit more courage to do so, because it's very tough, as we talked about last time. Uh, It's easier for me to do. It's hard for somebody like you to do, Bob, but you do it extremely eloquently and do it in a way that's that's sensitive, and you make your point. But that's hard to do because so many people get called racist. They've had careers trashed. it's, it's really extraordinary what the left will do because, again, it's like a dog with a bone. If that's all that dog thinks it's going to have to eat for the next several days, it's going to hold on to it like crazy. Same with Democrats. They've got nothing else to talk about because they control the schools. They do. Yeah. They control all of these cities, and yet these things are turning into cesspools, and all they can do to shield themselves from accusations of incompetence and, you know, who knows what else, is to call the accuser racist. It's a great metaphor, by the way, the dog with the bone metaphor. And and then last thing I'll say, Pete, in response to my last question, with which was about the two-parent households, um, isn't it true that roughly three-quarters of uh, African-American children today are born to single mothers? Seventy-three percent. Seventy-three. That's the overall national figure. But but Bob, in places like Baltimore, it's even worse. You can go to neighborhoods in Baltimore where the figure is close to one hundred percent. Those kids, you know, I, I never want to consign anybody to hopelessness, but those kids have an extraordinarily difficult uphill battle to make it in society coming from those circumstances. And President Trump is shining a light on this. He's taking all kinds of heat for this. But that's necessary because we need to change the discourse now so that we are no longer cowed by these false accusations of racism that then prevent us from addressing the underlying substantive problems. Pete, uh, the the cities that you're talking about, like Baltimore, just to throw this out there to the FBI crime statistics from earlier this year, we're ta- we've got current numbers here. I think this is from February or March. Show once again what you already know: the top ten most crime-ridden cities in America are all run by Democrats, and the majority of them have been, as you also pointed out, like Detroit, for decades. Same policies, same people, leading to the same results with the same demographics and the same cities. Uh, I don't know how anybody can't see this and how they can then thus blame it on systemic racism uh, as being the problem. Yeah, and you look at at New York City is one of the better examples because it was a cesspool in the 70s and 80s under Democratic administrations. Rudy Giuliani comes in, turns it around, turns actually turns it around by engaging conservative 
law enforcement policies and other community-based policies. And now you've got de Blasio in, and it's turning back around again. It's turning by around, I mean, in the wrong direction. And it's amazing to me that the residents of these places continue to go along with this crap. Sorry for my, my English there, but they go along with this stuff. Homicides occur. There are all kinds of debilitating circumstances related to children that occur. The places truly turn into cesspools, as we've seen in places like L.A., San Francisco, Seattle. It's it's extraordinary that residents of these places will put up with this. And the only tool these Democratic politicians have to remain in office is to play the race card. That's all they've got. They've got no policy prescriptions, and they've presided over the continued decline of once vibrant neighborhoods. And what's most objectionable is we've got these folks lying about the causes of it. And that's why I highlighted the school discipline report. They are, by trying to perpetuate this narrative of, well, the the suspensions are due to discrimination, they're perpetuating the failures of these schools, and the kids that get hurt the most are the black kids who want to learn, who who are in school to achieve, to get out of those circumstances, and now can't because the thugs remain in the schools who should have been suspended. Perfectly stated, as always, by Peter Kirstenau. It's like shooting ducks in a barrel, my friend. Uh, we'll, talk to you. <laughs> we'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks, Peter Kirstenau. Okay, Bob. You got it. Peter Kirstenau, Cleveland Attorney, member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, laying it out like only Pete can. Like I told you, it's kind of like a holiday when we have Peter Kirstenau on. And guess what? I just got some good news. He has agreed to come on with me again this week on Thursday morning on the Hugh Hewitt Show. I will be sitting in for you uh, for the rest of this week, and we'll have more from Pete on the latest on those developments uh, coming up 830 if you want to mark your calendar Thursday morning. Pete will be back. All right, 1051, we'll get our final time out and come right back and wrap it up here on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, 1055, final segment of the broadcast today. That's the bad news. The good news is you got Mike Gallagher waiting in the wings to take you until noon. Then you get Dennis Prager's brilliance until Dr. G, Dr. Sebastian Gorka, Jay Sekulow, Larry Elder, all day, all night, right here on AM 1420, The Answer. If you're looking for the best in conservative news talk and analysis, well, free of the buffoonery, buffoonery you get in other places in this town, then you stay right here on AM 1420, The Answer. I want to close with this. I was talking earlier in the show about uh, Al Sharpton and his anti-cop uh, uh, missives, his uh, off-the-cops chants and rallies, his uh, rally, his uh, defaming of police officers back in, uh, what was it, 1992, I believe it was, in the Tawana Brawley case and more. Just kind of made me want to go to this story. Uh, also, I guess I could tie this, if I wanted to, to you know the con- continuing anti-cop narratives being advanced by the likes of Nike, uh, which continues to employ and pay Colin Kaepernick millions of dollars to be their spokesman. Uh, the anti-cop uh, narrative that was started under Barack Obama's uh, watch continues in places like that. But it brings stories like this. The last one I'll end with today. A Brazilian steakhouse in San Antonio, Texas, is the latest. You remember it was just a few weeks ago, Starbucks. Yeah, Was it also in Texas? Can't confirm that. But a Starbucks uh, store manager made a group of five police officers who were standing there drinking their coffee, getting ready to start their shifts, were asked to leave the building because a, another customer, a non-police officer customer, said they didn't feel safe with police officers in the building. 
and they made the cops leave, as opposed to the complaining customer. This is a Brazilian steakhouse in San Antonio that is now apologizing to law enforcement in that city after a manager, not a 16-year-old, you know, uh, uh, bus boy or, or hostess or somebody who doesn't know any better, a store manager asked an armed officer to leave the restaurant because he was armed. The incident took place Saturday, downtown San Antonio location of Fogo de Chao. I don't know this place. Apparently, they got a, it's a chain. They got a few around the country. Manager reportedly requested the police officer leave because of his gun. A law enforcement officer who was dining at our San Antonio location recently was asked to leave the premises by our staff because he was carrying a firearm. The restaurant stated in a message posted to Facebook, We made a mistake by asking him to leave and sincerely apologize to the officer and to the San Antonio Police Department for this unfortunate lapse in judgment. I'm going to stop there and say, good apology, that's fine. But how does that lapse of judgment take place? It's a cop. Cops carry guns, and they're allowed legally to carry them into any facility and establishment that they wish. It's what their job is, is to protect people, and that means they have to have weapons. We are working hard to address and correct the matter, says the restaurant. That includes us apologizing directly to the officer and training our team members on the laws in relation to firearms on business premises. We support premises. We support, respect, and appreciate everything law enforcement does to keep us safe every day. But that happened, and it continues to happen. And worse yet, the online responses to this story from cop haters congratulating the restaurant and condemning them for the apology, saying they don't belong in there, you should reject them at every turn. I don't know what happened to reason and common sense in our society at a time we used to actually respect law enforcement for being the guys that ran toward the dangers that the rest of us are running away from. But we're there, and it just seems to be getting worse. That story has been tweeted as well from France Radio. If you're on Twitter and Facebook and Parler, you'll see it from me. If you follow me at France Radio, F-R-A-N-T-Z Radio, and I'll correspond with you there. Mike Gallagher's next. Stay right here on AM 1420, The Answer, and we'll see you tomorrow. Enjoy the silence. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.